This is TSC Now, a podcast by the Tuber Sclerosis Alliance. Hello, and welcome to the October episode of TSC Now. As always, I'm your host, Dan Klein. After a one-month hiatus, I'm excited to be back with all of you. Before getting to this month's interview, I wanted to make two quick announcements. First, the third and final virtual TSC and LAM conference co-hosted with the LAM Foundation is next Saturday, November 7th, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern. If you have not registered yet, you can do so now at tsalliance.org conferences. While you're there, you can also watch the track sessions from the previous two conferences and check out the virtual exhibit hall where you can find great resources from our conference sponsors. Second, the TS Alliance is reaching out to individuals with TSC who had COVID-19 infection to collect information in the Natural History Database. TSC researchers will be using this information to help determine how medications such as Everolimus or Sirolimus and TSC conditions affect the risk of getting COVID-19 and its severity. Participation in the TS Alliance TSC Natural History Database is voluntary. Please ask your TSC clinic to enroll you in the TSC Natural History Database if you are not already enrolled. If you or your loved one had COVID-19 confirmed by testing and do not go to one of the TSC clinics or have questions, please contact Joanne Nakagawa at jnakagawa at tsalliance.org or 1-800-225-6872. This month, I took a break from COVID to explore one of the more exciting and cutting-edge topics in TSC research, gene therapy. I spoke to Dr. Zandra Brakefield, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and a geneticist specializing in neurology and radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Brakefield has been studying gene therapy in preclinical mouse models of TSC in which the TSC1 or TSC2 gene are missing. By introducing the missing gene into the bloodstream via an adeno-associated virus, otherwise known as an AAV vector, Dr. Brakefield has been able to normalize brain structures and extend the lifespan to almost normal length in mouse models of both TSC1 and TSC2. This research was funded in part by grants through the Tuberous Sclerosis Complex Research Program, demonstrating how funds appropriated because of your tireless advocacy are meaningfully advancing TSC research. As Dr. Brakefield notes in our conversation, these AAV vectors have proven safe and beneficial in gene therapy for several other diseases, including spinal muscular atrophy and hemophilia B. So there's a lot of promise for potential clinical trials in TSC. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Brakefield. I'm now joined by Dr. Zandra Brakefield, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and a geneticist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Brakefield, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure. So to start, how did you first get involved in TSC research? Well, I'm trying to remember that because now people keep asking me, but I was interested, I'm interested in uh, tumor suppressor syndromes because my sister has one called uh, neurofibrotosis type one. And I, I went to a seminar, which is at uh, Harvard Medical School, 
and just to find out more about, you know, tuberous sclerosis. And the person who was running tuberous sclerosis Alliance said everybody should look under their chair because there was a book under the chair for someone. And I looked under my chair and there was the book. It was a book written by a woman who had lamb, but it was a very moving book. I remember finding the book and saying, I'm the last person in this room that should get this book. I don't even work on tuberous sclerosis. But somehow I think that something stuck. And then also there's a lot of people actually in our community that work on tuberous sclerosis. And they were all, you know, David Piekowski and Lisa Hensky and Elizabeth Teal. It goes on and on. So, you know, there was a lot of there's a lot of interest in tuberous sclerosis in our community. And everybody's very helpful in terms of, you know, giving you mouse models or whatever, you know, cells, whatever you need to, to proceed. So and Elizabeth Teal, who's the clinician at Mass General, yeah, is very, very driving about, you know, doing something. And so and she's actually a friend of mine from a long time ago. So I think all those things just came together. And I, I, I kind of entered the wave. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a bench of TSC superstar researchers up at Harvard. And it, it's awesome that you all get to work together and benefit from each other's work. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. They're, I mean, they're, at least in my experience, there's no competition. I'm just help each other. You know, it's definitely a, a cause that everybody is committed to. So you work in a very exciting part of TSC research, something that's kind of cutting edge and almost seems kind of like out of sci-fi, looking at the potential for gene therapy in TSC. Can you tell me a little bit about how gene therapy works generally and, you know, what the scientific rationale for it is in TSC specifically? It's gotten very complicated in terms of what you can do in gene therapy now. But the simplest notion is in a case like tuberous sclerosis, they have two copies of the gene for either tuberin or homartin. There's a mutation, they're born with mutation in one copy. So that's knocked out. And then if sometime during their development or during their life in some susceptible tissue, the other one gets gets knocked out, then they don't they don't have that protein anymore, right? And that's when the cells start enlarging and proliferating and causing problems. So the simplest idea of therapy is that you just you use and it, what works seems to be working best are virus vectors because viruses are very good at getting into cells and you can basically completely gut them and just use it's almost like a little space capsule, just use their capsid to get into the cell. And then you can bring the gene back into the cell and and some vectors, like adeno-associated virus vector, which is actually a clinical product now for different types of hereditary diseases, if it lands in a non-dividing cell, will stay there 20 years or more, sure, um, and just makes protein that's that's missing. As long as making too much isn't a bad thing, because you can't really regulate the levels very well, the, the cell will no- normalize. It'll stop dividing. If it's not supposed to be dividing, it will shrink. And it won't be completely normal, but it won't be causing those lesions, et cetera. So that's the general idea. And also with these vectors, you know, I, I'm just using ones that other people kind of invented. You can actually inject the vector into the bloodstream and it will go to essentially all the tissues, even the brain. So that's, with respect to tuberculosis, that's the approach that we're using. We are basically taking the gene or actually we take a, what's called a cDNA, which is a copy of the message in, in DNA form, put that in the vector. And then we have a mouse model of both TSC1 and TSC2. Both were developed by David Kwiatkowski. So it would be might be a little complicated to explain the model, but basically the, the model, the mice get many of the same lesions that the patients get. And if we inject this replacement vector early in life,
life, basically the lesions regress and the mice live a long time. So a lot of your research so far has focused, you know, preclinically on these mouse models. What are the next steps and how do we eventually transition to, you know, studying the effects of gene therapy in a clinical setting with, with actual TSC patients? Yeah, well, that's the whole point, actually. But and I have to say, you know, I'm a PhD and I, I basically do science and I have been worked with clinicians before in other diseases and gotten things into clinical trials, but I'm not the expert on it. But fortunately, we have, we have two things in our favor. One is we have Elizabeth Teal, who's done a lot of clinical trials in tuberous sclerosis and has a, you know, a lot of patients at the ready, as it were. And then we were joined by a biotechnology company who is very experienced in making clinical grade vectors, is very experienced in knowing what studies have to be done preclinically for the FDA to say, okay, you can go ahead with the clinical trial. So they've been very helpful in kind of guiding our work towards that end rather than just as a scientist, we just look at this, look at that, and, you know, find out more things. But they're definitely directing our efforts towards a clinical trial. We haven't decided exactly what that clinical trial would be at this point, but we now have all the skills in place. That being said, you know, it would probably take a couple of years at the least to do all the experiments that you have to do to satisfy the FDA that this is going to be safe. That's what we're doing now is, you know, basically biodistribution, toxicity, you know, just to make sure that things are would be safe for the patients. You mentioned that there are some current clinical applications of gene therapy for other diseases. Can you share some examples of like where it has been shown effective in patients? I'm just going to give examples of using this particular type of vector. So basically spinal mu- muscular atrophy with the babies from very early on, their motor neurons die and they lose movement control. That's now a product that, you know, can be injected into babies and helps a lot. I wouldn't say it completely normalizes them, but honestly, you know, we've been to meetings where they show, you know, normally by the end of a year, the baby would be basically unable to move almost. And now they'll show you a picture of a similar baby who was treated early in life and they're climbing up the stairs. But also for a, a form of blindness, they inject the vector into the eye. And if they inject the vector, again, do a gene replacement, they don't regain lost vision, but if they do it before they've completely lost the vision, they're stabilized. And so they can still see. Those are the two. I mean, there are other types of gene therapy where they actually take cells out of the bone marrow and, you know, replace the gene in them and then reinfuse the cells. And that can be used for other neurodegenerative diseases. Oh, another one for the AV vectors, though, would be hemophilia. So basically that, that the vector actually, this particular vector we use likes to go to the liver best, honestly. And that's where these clotting factors are made in the liver. So if they inject it, it goes to the liver, starts making the, you know, these clotting factors, then the patient doesn't need to take that protein anymore. They can, they'll just make their own clotting factor and they make enough of it that they, they can lead a pretty normal life. And why is the AAV method like the most promising one for TSC versus some of those other methods you described? Well, it's it's proven clinically to be safe. It's, it's proven clinically to act long-term. The vector itself is very safe. You just have the components of the virus that allow your DNA to get into the capsid. There's nothing else, you know, toxic in there. It's a very simple uh, injection. 
There might be other ways using CRISPR technology, but at this point in time, that's not as efficient. Given that there's so many different mutations that cause tuberculosis, you'd have to have almost be personalized medicine. You know what I mean? Along that same line of questioning, what are the advantages to, you know, the vector gene therapy versus the current treatments available, you know, the mTOR inhibitors? One of the downsides of the current medications available are, you know, you take them and the the lesions shrink, but if if you stop taking them, they return. Could this potentially offer treatment where you're not dependent on continuing to take it for life? Well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's one of the positive things about gene, gene therapy is that, well, I'm, I'm gonna, I have to qualify a little bit. Yes, you just take one injection. You actually can't take another injection because your body at this point, and I'm sure this will be overcome in the future, makes antibodies to that vector then, so you can't get a second dose anyway. But all these gene therapy with AVs are, are just single doses. So, But that being said, the, the, the vector is not going to get into every cell, okay? If you're lucky, you might get into, you know, 30% of the potentially infected tissue. So the, it doesn't mean that person might not get lesion later in life. It, it means that they're lesions they have should be re reduced in size. And basically, if, if they still had lesions and they needed like the rapamycin analogs, they could be used, still be used. The other thing about it is only a few cells in the body are affected or will become affected. A lot of other cells will get an extra copy there. So now they had one good copy. Now they're going to have another copy too. So if in the future there was a mutation that occurred in the good copy, they'd have this backup now. So it should reduce the frequency of lesions, but not eliminate them. But but again, like I said, was it a, pro a problem that you know wasn't addressed by the vector? The person could always use the drug. So those two things could be used in combination to control right. the disease. Ideally, the person would do a lot better have fewer lesions, et cetera, because of the vector. You mentioned that this vector is, you know, very safe. It's already been demonstrated in, in a clinical setting to be safe. Are there any potential side effects of this treatment? It really depends on what you're delivering. That's the issue. I think the vector itself has proven to be safe. But like I said, you can't control the level of expression of whatever you're producing. So, you know, that would be the, the thing we have to establish for tuberculosis is, let's say, a cell that's lost tuberin, as in TSC2, it still has no normal levels of hemorrhage. And those two act together. So our hope is that, and, I, and we think so far this is true, that even if you overexpress, let's say, tuberin, because it has to interact with homartin and homartin is there at normal levels, the extras tuberin will just get degraded and you will just, you will have normal amounts of the complex. So that's, that's the goal. But that that's the issue you have to address is it would overexpressions uh, cause problems. And that is true for some proteins. You know, like I said, so far we don't think, we think it is going to be safe, but a lot more work has to be done. So what are, what are the next steps to, you know, if you've mentioned that we're still a few years probably from clinical trials, what, what other information do we need to make sure that those trials are safe and effective? Well, that's, I mean, one of the issues trying to deal with now is in our animal model, we we're sure that, you know, they do shrink lesions. We still have to establish more of the safety. The one aspect of the disease that we're just testing now is epilepsy. We don't know how effective it's going to be, you know, remediating the, 
the epilepsy part of it, which is, so we don't, so there's, there's a lot of symptoms in tuberous sclerosis, but two of the main ones are one is epilepsy and one is these overgrowth lesions. So we're pretty sure we're on top of the overgrowth lesions, but the epilepsy, that's what's being tested now. We don't know yet whether it will, um, and the model we're using, yeah, doesn't, the epilepsy is not due to overgrowth lesions in this particular mouse model. So it's, it's due to the actual neurons not having the right amount of protein. So that, you know, we're still just testing in different animal models. So it's always very nice in these situations to have a large animal model. I'm not sure there is a large animal model for tuberous From many diseases, they're making these pig models or, or there's naturally occurring models in dogs or cats or something. So that's another issue is gearing up to the size. From a mouse, I think it was like a th- more than a thousand times bigger, right? So that's another issue you have to, to deal with. And hopefully, and you also have to test it in, make sure it's safe in non-human primates. That's the closest we can come to humans. So so all that testing still has to be done. Yeah, I know uh, Dr. Kwiatkowski has personally advocated for the development of a TSC pig model just for that purpose, because like you said, going from a mouse to a human, I'm sure is a huge leap in figuring out yeah. the correct amount of dosing yeah. and everything. Yeah. In some cases, I mean, I would say for many diseases, there aren't these large animal models. And it doesn't, if there is not a large animal model, the FDA can't make you use one because there isn't one, right? So as long as people have gone forward from data in mice to human trials. So hypothetically, you know, after we've done this initial preclinical testing, what would a clinical trial look like? Would people just get an intravenous injection and then continue to be monitored to see if their tumors are shrinking or or how exactly would it work? Well, I think that that's, you know, that's what they basically did with rapamycin. You inject the vector, then you would probably, I would guess we would do it in adults first and then adults who had lesions, kind of enlarged lesions in, in the kidney or whatever. And then you would monitor the size of the lesion. Well, you'd monitor a lot of things about their health and everything else. But in addition, you'd look for the lesions to shrink. The cells are actually enlarged. So when you replace the gene, they shrink. I mean, we can see that in cultured cells for the patients. So the MRI would basically monitor the size of that those lesions. And we would hope that they would shrink over the course of something like a couple of months. So my final question is, you know, I know there's a lot of excitement in the community about new treatment options and, you know, people hear about CRISPR and gene therapy and think of it as like maybe the next big breakthrough. What in this area of research really excites you in terms of what the future holds? Well, what's exciting is just there's so many new approaches to different types of genetic diseases. That's, I mean, the whole CRISPR technology is absolutely amazing. That's all intellectually very exciting. For myself personally, honestly, since I, you know, my sister, as I said, has, has a similar condition. And when she was diagnosed at the time, they just said, you know, your child has this. And at the time it was, you know, she shouldn't um, get pregnant. You know, we don't, we can't monitor. Anyways, it was kind of a nightmare. So that was always my motivation. We need to find these disease genes and then we need to figure out, you know, therapies for them. And gene replacement is one therapy. Uh, there's a lot of other therapies being developed now, which, like I said, which is very exciting. But for me, you know, I, I said, well, first of all, I have to find some of these genes 
And then I have to develop vectors to replace the genes. And then, you know, I want to take it to patients. And so my real hope is that, you know, that I get this to patients and that it helps them. That that would be the most rewarding thing. Well, thank you for sharing your motivation. That's a common story we hear from people in our community, especially people who were diagnosed years ago, is that there just weren't any treatment options available. And, you know, because of the work of many dedicated researchers like you, we continue to move science forward. We continue to learn more about the disease and provide new treatments. And in doing so, your work is offering a lot of hope to people. So thank you for everything that you do. Well, I mean, I think this is a great community. I would say of all the communities that I've interacted with, the tuberculosis community is really amazingly supportive of each other and of the research. And yeah, you guys do a great job of, you know, enthusing people to help. Well, thanks for that. And thank you for talking to me. And hopefully this will continue to drum up more enthusiasm for supporting research. My thanks again to Dr. Brakefield for sharing about her research. And thank you for listening this month. Tune in next month for an update on that ongoing study focusing on COVID-19 and individuals with TSC. See you then. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. You can find all our episodes at tsalliance.org slash tscnow. Thanks for listening.